you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com. Click on podcast to learn more and to become a premium member today. high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look be your own interior designer this is affordable interior design the podcast here's your host betsy Hellman. as promised guys i am here for you on thanksgiving is your family around are you supposed to be making cranberry sauce right now Are you escaping into the bathroom, the closet, the basement, just to catch your breath and get some alone time? Boy, do I feel you. (laughs) I love entertaining. I love having people over. And I really love to cook, even though, as my family will tell you, I'm not all that good at it. But I'm an only child at heart. And every now and again, I need my personal space. There will come a time in the day's events when I will just need to check out a little bit. And it's so funny because my husband is also an only child. So sometimes when I'm sneaking up to the primary bedroom to just lay on the bed and scroll through Facebook, I will find him sitting on the stairs, hiding out in his office, just being in my son's room under a Pokemon blanket, playing video games on his phone. And he will also be checking out and will just nod. And then I'll say, honey, it's your turn to get downstairs because it's my turn to check out. Does that happen to you guys? Well, if you're sneaking in a checkout moment, then I hope that this podcast is giving you something to do, a mild form of escape before you go back down to have some turkey. This year, my family and I are doing something a little bit different. Normally, my mom comes, his mom comes, and we have, because we're both only children, a rather small, intimate Thanksgiving gathering. Because of coronavirus, things are looking a little bit different this year. So we're going to my husband's aunt's house in Boston, and he used to have Thanksgivings there. So we're going to have Thanksgivings there. And one thing I love about this house, so I've only been one time, I met his aunt this summer. Well, I didn't meet her. I guess I'd met her before at my wedding, but do you really meet anyone at a wedding? Like there's a lot going on. So I went to her house this summer just to say hi, to meet, you know, people, to see her house. And as you guys know, I have a very soft spot in my heart for mid-century modern design. Whenever people ask me what my style is, unfortunately, I feel kind of embarrassed to say it now, but I don't feel like I have a personal style. 
I really appreciate all sorts of styles. And as I'm house hunting with every house I'm looking at, I'm like designing it. And I'm looking at all these different houses. Some of them I really design. Like I make floor plans based on the floor plans on Trulia. I pick out wallpaper based on the decor that's like in the house in terms of the moldings and baseboards and floor stain. And I mean, I go a little nuts and that's before I've even seen the home. But that's just what I like to do. So, you know, good thing I'm in this profession. But anyway, uh, back before I was an interior designer and totally adapted my taste to my client's taste, I totally adapt the furniture even I would buy for myself to the home I'm looking at. Like I looked at one mid-century modern home and I had this whole thing picked out, this amazing mural wallpaper that was super mod and vibrant. But then the other day I went to look at a very transitional, classic, sophisticated home, obviously had been done by a designer in terms of the taste level with all the finishes. And I was like, oh, I got to go transitional in this house. Everything's a little bit opulent, a little bit over the top and a little bit ornate. So I'm going to have to play by those rules. I can't just insert my vintage 60s buffet in this place. I am a chameleon now. But when I started my interior design career, what really lit me up, what lit me up even as a child was mod, like Brady Bunch on crack, like Formica, bold colors, really intense patterns, geometrics. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And there still is a piece of me that feels like that's who I am because it's all I can remember loving outside of my clients' tastes. So I joined this Facebook group, Mid-Century Modern Interiors, and I thought I would just be drooling, right? I thought that picture after picture would bring back that original reason that I love design. And instead, I'm browsing these people's pictures of the decor they're choosing and things like that, and it just feels dated. It doesn't feel sophisticated or fresh or even designerly. It just feels like people are living in the past. Now, I'm sure there's a way to update it, and not every picture does this to me, but I just have a hard time hooking in and finding it to be aspirational. It feels like somebody went to thrift stores and antique stores and just kind of recreated that in their home. And while I'm a huge fan... You know, I'm a huge fan of thrift stores, antique stores, and my dad was an auctioneer. So I love all that stuff. It just doesn't feel very up-leveled. It certainly doesn't have that look that a designer did it, right? It feels like a replica from a set on TV. And there was this post about this book that was on sale at the Dollar General store. And we don't have a Dollar General store near me here in Westchester, unfortunately, but I love a good deal. This book was $3 at the Dollar General. So I said to myself, I said, I bet I can get a copy on Amazon for really cheap. And I was right. So I got this book because again, you know, the older I get, the more nostalgic I get. And I want to walk down memory lane. I want to feel the feelings I had when I was a new designer. And I want to see if it can inspire me when I'm looking to, you know, redesign a dream home, right? When I find my new place, I'm going to just go nuts and make it totally me, whatever me looks like when I marry me with the architecture of my new space. So I got Better Homes and Gardens Decorating Book. 
classic from 1961. So once again, if you're not seeing this on YouTube or getting the link from my podcast page at affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast, you can check it out on your own Amazon Better Homes and Gardens decorating book. I got it for like $5. And again, it says classic design from 1961. So there's probably more contemporary uh, versions, but I really love this one. And as I'm going through it, they have like all these different tips and tricks and suggestions. And surprisingly, while I didn't find myself drawn to much of the furniture, which is a big surprise, I did find myself like questioning their tips. In fact, even this page, which I just randomly turned to, you should actually orient this round table 45 degrees so that the chairs are on the diagonal. And rather than the chair pushing out so that it touches the wall, the chair should push out towards the corner because the longest line is the diagonal. So you'll have more room to push back without hitting the wall. I just want to critique these people. Oh my gosh. So I'm sure you, in whatever profession you have, whether it's interior design or you know, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a CPA, can look back at the first iteration of yourself in that career and kind of cringe, right? Are there things that you did back then, things that you felt so strongly about at that time that now you're like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? And does it make you feel a little bit lost now? Like maybe you're not as anchored to your past self or maybe that past self was more you and now you're more sort of diluted in a way by all the different influences. In my case, it's been all the amazing clients I've had whose tastes have sunk into my pores and my brain and my being. And now I really love the looks that they love. I can't separate myself from all the things I love for them does that happen to you? Does that happen to a CPA? You can't separate your own taxes from theirs. That that sounds like it could get messy. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to share that anecdote because I'm thinking about unfollowing that group. And I'm thinking that this book is just going to look really nice on my bookshelf, but I'm going to stop like pouring through it because I just want to take my highlighter and like change everything. <laughs> okay, there we go. Let's dig in to your questions today. So without further ado, let's reach in to our mailbag. My question comes from Carrie from Clayton, North Carolina. All right, Carrie writes, Hi, Betsy. I'm a brand new listener. I stumbled upon your podcast by what I now believe is fate. My husband and I and our 16-month-old daughter just bought our forever home. I really want to make this home feel special since we have moved around a lot before this. However, the master bedroom is a real head-scratcher for me. There's a very low-to-the-ground, large off-center window. It's a beautiful window, and I love all the natural light. But how do I make this room feel balanced with such an unbalanced placement of this window? And with the window being so low-to-the-ground, I can't put anything in front of it without losing precious sunlight. Is that right? All I plan on having in this room will be our bed, end tables, desk, and a dresser. I love your eye for these things, and I'm open to anything you have to say. I'm ready to play around with anything, curtains, paint, furniture layout. I have been mulling this design conundrum in my head for a while, which is why I believe it is fate that I found you. Thank you for making the world more beautiful, Carrie. Well, Carrie, I'm happy to help. 
and welcome to the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episodes. Dig right in. We've got over 300 for you to enjoy. And if you become a premium member, we've got nearly 75 more. So tune in because there's a lot of content coming your way. However, in all those episodes, I have never seen a window this large and off-center. You know, it almost makes me think that maybe they added a master suite later, or maybe the architect was, I don't know, (laughs) um, off his rocker when he created this, because it is a really beautiful large window that is right on this wall that's large as well. Like I'm just going to guesstimate because I really love guesstimating. I just love that. That's how I get my kicks. So I'm going to say that the window is six to seven feet wide and it is really in the corner of this wall. It's just two inches off the corner. And then on the other side of the window is another six to seven feet of wall. So it is so awkwardly placed because not only does it have three different breaks, right? But also it has a half circle at the top. So it's quite a grand, large, visually powerful window that would normally be the centerpiece of any master or living room. And instead, it's the corner piece, if you know what I'm saying. It's very strange. Nobody should put baby in the corner, as we know from Dirty Dancing, and nobody should put an extra large and semi-ornate window in the corner. It really leads me to believe that they added this half bath or full bath later or something or something strange. But the room is a really great size and has a lot to offer otherwise. In fact, I'm a little bit jealous because my primary bedroom does not have an ensuite bathroom. So just jealous. I wouldn't mind having an off-center window if I had a luxurious soaker tub. You know what I'm saying? Speaking of primary bedroom, this was only brought to my attention a couple of months ago by our amazing content writer, Sue Allen, but she let me know that we don't say master bedroom anymore. We say primary bedroom. So I think that that is something good for us all to know. It's something that I've been learning, you know, as we become more aware socially and, um, just more PC. I didn't know about this primary bedroom thing until a couple months ago, but I want to share it with all of you. So that way, when I'm reading your emails, I don't have to translate it to primary bedroom because it's hard enough for me to remember. (laughs) And uh, so there we go. Now we'll all remember to call the former master bedroom, the primary bedroom. Okay, let's dig right in. So I have some great pictures here that give me a really good sense of the room. And I love that you also sent a little sketch, which is quite helpful. Now, typically, the biggest piece of furniture would go on the longest unbroken wall. And that's certainly the case with the the bed, right? It's probably going to be a king, right? And so unbroken means that it doesn't have windows, it doesn't have doors, it doesn't have openings. In other words, I would not put the bed on the wall with the window because it's going to look crazy. Why put a big bed off-centered of a big window, even if it's going to be centered on this wall? Plus, to make matters worse, there's two floor vents. And of course, they're not centered on this window either. So one is kind of in the corner uh, over by the window corner, and one is on the right-hand side, maybe three or four feet away from that corner. So they're kind of awkwardly placed, asymmetrical. Again, makes me wonder, what was the architect thinking? I say that a lot with my clients. What was the architect thinking? 
but we're going to take what's there and make it better. That's what I do. Okay, so we know that the bed is not going on that wall, and I like to use process of elimination. Those of you who've taken my academy know that I spend two modules outlining how I create the floor plan for a room, and so it's very difficult to quickly summarize it on a podcast, but you want to try all possible options, and in this room, it doesn't seem like there are that many options, right? Because, of course, we're not going to put the bed on the wall with the bathroom door. We're not going to put the bed on the wall with the walkway because that's a broken wall, right? It has the opening for the walkway. So the door that's kitty corner from the walkway, according to your hand-drawn sketch, is going to be the perfect place to put the bed and it's going to be the best feng shui because ideally you want the bed kitty corner from the main point of access so that when you walk in, you can clearly see the bed and from bed, you can clearly see who's walking in. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. Do you love this podcast? Do you wish you could learn even more? Well, we have an online class bundle. Our online class bundle is comprised of three online classes, Beautifying Your Home for Less, Styling Your Home, and The Fundamentals of Feng Shui. Each one of those three classes is between 30 and 45 minutes long and chock-filled with visuals and tips things that will help you to style your own space or help out with other spaces. Additionally, with the pack of three classes, you get an autographed copy of my book, Affordable Interior Design. You get all of that for only $99. Once again, that's the three online classes as well as the book for only $99. You just go to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to buy your bundle today. And if one of those classes sounded intriguing, but maybe you already have my book or some of the other topics are not of interest, you can buy the classes individually at that site as well. Each class is $40. So head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to get your bundle or your online class today. Now, we've solved the problem of where to put the bed, and we know we're not going to put it anywhere near Funky Window, but what do we do with Funky Window? You mentioned, Betsy, I can't block it, and that is totally untrue. You can block windows, especially large windows, right? Don't worry about obstructing some of the light. So much light comes through that it would be totally fine. That being said, I would probably block it with something that's small and inconsequential because putting a desk in front of there, as you guys can see, if you're watching on our YouTube channel, or if you're looking at the show notes at affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast, you can see that as you're walking down the hall, walking into the bedroom from the door, you can clearly see this window. I think it would be a great opportunity to put an upholstered bench that's maybe four feet long and just add sort of that window bench feel. I would also add window treatments to this window, not just because I like to sleep in total blackout, but also because I think that it will help this to look less unfinished, less awkward. So I would put a rod. I'm trying to decide because with these windows that have a half moon shape or um, half circle shape on top, there's two ways you typically dress them. Either you put the rod under the half moon so that it spans the entire length of the windows below, which are wider than that half circle shape. Or you get a really long rod and put it above the half moon shape. 
In either case, you're going to have drapes that go all the way down to the floor. The good news about these off-center awkward drapes is if you use my four-foot bench and if you have drapes that go all the way to the floor, they're not going to obstruct those vents because we definitely don't want anything covering those because that's probably how you're getting your AC and your heat. And we don't want this room to become cold or hot. If this were my room, because the windows are high but not so high, like it looks like about eight to nine feet high versus 14 feet high, because it's only eight to nine feet, I think, oh, and also because I like blackout. I don't know if you like blackout, but I cannot sleep with any natural light. Like I need total blackout in the primary bedroom. So I would do a nice long rod that goes above the half moon shape extends the entire length of the window, but has very small finials or end caps because this window is just inches away from the corner. So you don't want the edge of the rod to be touching the perpendicular wall. You want at least an inch gap there. Then, because I like them to shut, I would be doing double wide panels because you want double the width of drapery that you have width of window. So say this window was a hundred inches long. It's not, but say it was. Each of your two panels should be a hundred inches. So that's just a rough window primer. Uh, but anyway, I would do blackout double wide curtains that go all the way to the floor and are above the half moon window. Look at this. On your very first question to this podcast that you've just discovered, Carrie, I've solved all your problems. Now, in terms of where you put the ancillary pieces of furniture, like the desk, like the dresser, well, it really depends. You know, you could off-center the bed so that the wall next to the door as you enter could potentially have the desk. That would be sort of my feeling. So as you enter the room on the right-hand side, you'd have the desk. If we're going counterclockwise, you'd have the nightstand, the bed, the nightstand. Then you have a piece of wall leading to that strange window. And then on the wall opposite the bed, I would put a long low dresser with a TV question mark. I don't currently have a TV in my bedroom. And twice this week, I have regretted it. I just want to go in my bedroom, watch horrible shows like 90 Day Fiance, Married at First Sight. Those are my jam. And I want to fall asleep instead of falling asleep in the recliner downstairs while I watch 90 Day Fiance and Married at First Sight. You know what I'm saying? So I've solved all your problems on one of your very first episodes. Imagine how many problems I will solve as you listen to our entire archive. All right, let me get to the next question because the next question has a lot of different components. So I want to make sure to give it its due. This question comes from Winnipeg, Canada. Shout out to Cindy who has written me and says, Hi, Betsy, this is my second submission. I was so pleased with your advice that I couldn't wait for an opportunity to send another question. I just didn't know I could until I listened to your most recent podcast where you said it's okay to submit more than one question. Here I am. Yay. Definitely, Cindy. Send in more than one question. I love questions. I love pictures that illustrate the questions. And our mailbag is a little bit low. We're good, but I love questions. So keep them coming. Send them to affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. All right, your question. First of all, Betsy, I have to thank you for the best advice on a dark shiplap wall with rustic floors. Everything was too brown. It was too dark. Your advice was to whitewash it the same color as the rest of our walls, and I love the idea. We have renters in our home until summer 2022. 
but it feels like such an accomplishment to have that decision made for me. You're welcome, Cindy. That's what I do. Next for my question. This is our very small galley kitchen. The dimensions are nine feet by two wide by 18 by two long. Unfortunately, changing the flooring will not be an option at this time. My thoughts are to change the lower cabinet fronts to match the top, as all the cabinets and drawers are in excellent condition. What do you think? All right, so Cindy, you have a lot of questions, so I'm going to take them one by one. And folks, if you're not on our YouTube channel, if you're not in the show notes, I suggest that you get over there for this one because there's so many questions in Cindy's email that it's going to be hard for me to illustrate everything. Let me do my best, but I think the visual references are super helpful for this question. So you have kind of dark brown chocolate cabinetry on the bottom. It has like a striation or sort of a faux wood grain so that it almost looks like zebra wood, but it's not shiny. It's a matte dark brown color on the bottom with silver handles. On the top, you have white or off-white cabinetry, but it's got crown molding that is that same dark wood color from the lowers. So the crown is not just above the cabinetry, it's also below the cabinetry, which is kind of unusual. It's not something I see a lot. I wonder if it's concealing maybe a light source or something under the cabinets. I don't know, but it looks visually awkward and I would remove it if it's only decorative because it's not, not working for me. Uh, okay. And then you have stainless steel appliances throughout and you have a black sink. You asked, should you change the lower front cabinets to match? Well, here's my problem with that. You know, when you open the cabinets, what tone is it inside? If it is brown inside, then I think it will look a little bit funky to have white fronts. I don't know. I'm open. But it's not really bothering me that the uppers are different in color from the lowers. In fact, when I do have a two-tone kitchen, I really like the lowers to be the darker color and the uppers to be the lighter color because, of course, we're familiar with gravity and it brings things down. So darker feels better at the bottom. Uh, I'm fine with this being two-tone. The thing that I think would solve some problems is to pop off that pesky crown at the bottom or that trim and prop, pop off, excuse me, the crown at the top. Those two pieces are again, that dark brown. So it's making this white cabinetry look like it has this artificial outline, almost like a cartoon or something. And it's, it's just not good. In fact, as I scroll through these pictures, it's almost all I can see. The other thing I can see is that you have handles or pulls on the bottom cabinets for the most part, and you have knobs on the upper cabinets. I think it would make a huge visual difference to have pulls on the uppers as well as the lowers. I would eliminate all knobs. I do not like these knobs, and I would have it all be handles. In fact, if I'm looking closely at these knobs, there's a reason I particularly don't like them. So let me share this with you because... Maybe it will spare others some pain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I really, really, really hate square, rectilinear, anything that's not a circle, knobs. The reason I hate anything that's not a circle, knobs, is because you can always tell when it's slightly off. As you're pulling these cabinets open, as you're shutting them, these rectilinear or square knobs can easily get turned, and it looks so bad when they're not perfectly up and down. 
it makes it look messy and dated and poorly done when that may not be the case at all. Now, in this case, you're going to eliminate knobs altogether. But if you at home are contemplating getting knobs, don't get any knobs that aren't round. And knobs are not the classiest look. I think pulls are much more sophisticated. And I would do pulls throughout this kitchen to give it an elevated look on the cheap. Just use the same pulls that are on the bottom, just buy some more of them and drill an extra hole to accommodate them. And I think that is going to be a major upgrade. Let's go to your next question. You write, what should I do with the crown molding? Well, you know how I feel about that. Then you also ask, I'm looking for advice on the countertops, backsplash, and hardware. Now, if you're going to be changing out the countertops, backsplash, and hardware, well, I mean, it's like you're practically getting a new kitchen. Uh, I think that the countertops are pretty innocuous. Like nothing's going wrong there for me. They're dark and they kind of blend in nicely with the darker cabinetry. I think they're fine. I would leave well enough alone. I think the backsplash, which is very thin, it appears to be like a glass tile, very thin, extra long, small rectangles. It appears to be a glass mosaic tile, maybe with metallic pieces mixed in, maybe not. But that type of tile is very trendy. And that trend is now over, Cindy, which you may know, and which may be why you're asking me about this. But one very quick and relatively easy way to elevate a kitchen is to add a different backsplash, to swap this out, to take this tile off and put a new tile that can give it a totally new look. I would consider doing something that's a color because you don't want to do anything white with white uppers because one of them is going to look not white, right? White subway tile on a white cabinet. One of them is going to be more yellow. One of them is going to be more blue than the other. And it's going to make it look off. In fact, I was just looking at this dream home, like seriously a dream home in New Jersey. And they had just done a very extensive renovation and they had made everything white. Oh my God. It's so not my vibe. Now I can make anything work. So I already had a whole plan just from the pictures. I'd already designed it. And I put in a lot of colorful wallpaper, a lot of colorful art to break up all that white. Because when I was there, white walls, white vanity cabinet, white tiles, that's the bathroom. Then in the kitchen, white cabinetry, white countertops, white waterfall going all the way down to the white pickled floors. I was like, oh my gosh, this place is so white. But the problem is nothing looked white. Even the stove was white. Yeah. Yeah. Like the entire stove was white. It was a really cool stove, but with everything else being white, first of all, it looked cream instead of white. And then the elongated white subway tiles looked kind of blue in comparison to the white lacquer cabinetry. It was just like, what were people thinking? Like white on white on white, unless it's the exact same shade of white. And good luck with that, because even if it is when you install it, over time, cabinets tend to um, change slightly in color with the sun. Like as the sun kind of impacts the cabinet and the paint, it can easily turn creamy. And ugh. Come on, people, make some choices. White on white on white is not a choice. White is the absence of color. White on white on white is the absence of choice. Whoa, whoa, you can quote me on that. 
Okay. Anyway, so don't do white, but you know, you could really add some personality and flair with a more interesting color backsplash. Let's see. What's your next question? Do I have suggestions for lighting over the kitchen sink? Well, you know, of course I do. I always do. But the problem is, unless it's some kind of pendant that's coming down from the ceiling, which may be hard to do if you don't have electric in that ceiling, I might leave well enough alone. I might just put a blind in the window over the sink and call it a day. Uh, let's see what else. You asked me, my sink is black granite. I'm not sure about keeping this. I'm not sure either. It does not look good. All your appliances are stainless steel. Your countertop is sort of a version of black with some modeling to it. So that means that your countertop looks less black in comparison to this truly matte black sink. I would swap out the sink ASAP for a stainless steel sink that would better incorporate the hardware as well as the appliances and just make it feel more fresh and cohesive. You go on to say, I've attached a panoramic window in or a panoramic photo, excuse me, in front of our windows. The window closest to the kitchen has the table in front of it. The window is four and a half feet wide by 27 inches from the floor. There are 12 inches from the outside kitchen cabinet to the window. This is the space between the kitchen and the open concept dining area. We'll be moving the table in front of the patio doors when we move in, which will leave at least five and a half feet of empty space. What should I do with this space? Should I add a bar height breakfast bar in front of the window? The lake view is amazing. Should I add a low profile table in front and decorate it with plants? I would suggest any other ideas or suggestions. Okay, let's look at it. You know, I think it's going to look weird for you to put some kind of freestanding pub table, freestanding high island there because it's just going to look like another piece of rectilinear furniture near the table in front of the patio doors. Also, you know, if you wanted to, you could do that with like a peninsula effect, right? But that involves redoing the cabinetry or adding more cabinets, which may not match depending on how long these have been there because they may have faded. And then, of course, redoing the entire countertops, which, you know, I think are totally fine. What I might consider is, you know, the living area right now and there's like a big sectional right next to the patio doors, like maybe two to three feet away from the patio doors. There's a really large L-shaped sectional, and one of the arms kind of separates the patio door from the living space. I think having a table there might feel a little bit tight. Is this your only dining table? If this is your only dining table, I might center it between the edge of the patio window and the edge of that lake view window that's 27 inches off of the kitchen counter. I'd put a nice big rug. I'd have that elongated table with chairs at the head and foot and chairs around the side. And I think that's the better way to do it so that you're not obstructing the patio doors. You're not using a teeny tiny table next to a massive sectional. And you're really getting a much more gracious eating area without putting a little band-aid in the middle, this little weird island table high top thing that's not going to coordinate with the kitchen. And sure, there's room for stools and to push back, but you have seating with the table right behind it. Sometimes I think that's awkward, right, to have stools right next to a table because you can sit at either place. They're both seats. They're back to back. You have to have room to push them both out without hitting each other. So you need to give a lot of room. 
And by the time you give that much room, is this dining table practically touching this gigantic sectional? There's a lot to think about, Cindy, but I hope I've given you good food for thought. Get it? Get it with my pun, food for thought, because you're in a kitchen area, dining area. Okay. And also because it's Thanksgiving. So food for thought for Cindy. And I would be remiss if I didn't end this Thanksgiving episode by giving thanks. So thank you so much to my team at Affordable Interior Design, to my amazing podcast producer. I know I thank her after every show, but Catherine Heller is Da bomb. I also love Jenny Sunnison and her team at the Savvy Podcast Agency. She's amazing and posts our YouTube, posts our show notes. She and her team have made this so easy for me. Also, I want to thank, um, or I'm thankful for, how about that? My Chihuahua. He's with me all the time and he's my shadow and I just love him so much. And he's here with me when I record at my storefront and I love my storefront. I am so grateful to have this little space in Westchester where I come broadcast to you and where I can brainstorm all my next big ideas. And of course, I want to thank my family, my academy students, last but not least, Trader Joe's. Is anybody else obsessed with Trader Joe's? I talked about Facebook groups previously on the podcast and how I love Facebook and Facebook groups. I joined a Trader Joe's Facebook group and it is not only transforming my Thanksgiving, but it has transformed my daily life. From the chip witch sandwiches to the horseradish potato chips to the mint mini mouthfuls to the garlic squares, mini cones, egg rolls, chicken shumai. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but thank you, Trader Joe's. You have given us quite a Thanksgiving feast. And thank you, listeners. It's been so great to be a part of your holiday and to be a part of your lives. Keep your questions coming. I love to answer them at affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast and have a wonderful and gratitude-filled Thanksgiving. Bye. You've asked for it and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, You're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem, and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com.
If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.